Hi, it's Megan from the Grattan Institute. The following podcast is a recording of our Policy Pitch event, Congestion in Melbourne, Is It Time to Consider Congestion Charging?, which was held on 27 February at the State Library Victoria. Please note there were audio issues on the night, which has meant the audio on this recording is slightly distorted. We apologise for the inconvenience. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Andrew Hiskins, and I'm the manager of learning services here at the State Library of Victoria. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to the policy pitch. Tonight's topic is about traffic congestion in Melbourne. Um, and hopefully you didn't have to deal with too much of that on the way in tonight. This seminar is held on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting. I'd like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, Helen Rowe, Catherine Rooney, Elliot Fishman, and Marion Terrell. Um, Grattan Institute members and staff, and friends of the library. I'd like to note that 2018 is the National Year of Lifelong Learning. There has been widespread recognition of the importance of lifelong learning for individual and social development. It is integral to economic growth and to the development of active and engaged citizens. The Policy Pitch, which is a joint initiative of State Library Victoria and the Grattan Institute, supports lifelong learning in Victoria by creating a space for discussion and reflection, which is where we are, on important policy issues in a public arena. We're also pleased that these seminars and related reports are added to the library's digital collection for future use by researchers. Tonight, I'm looking forward to hearing about some new strategies about how to manage congestion and plan for the future as the population grows. I'm pleased now to introduce the moderator. Helen Rowe is the Head of Innovation and Strategy at Co-Design Studio. She has over 15 years of experience in urban and transport planning, policy and engagement, gained through senior positions within the Victorian State Government um, in transport as well as in consulting and research roles. She is passionate about exploring new ideas to drive innovation in our cities and is currently generating more participatory processes to create great streets at co-design and is also working at RMIT supporting new research on car parking reform. Please join me in welcoming Helen. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, and so I would just like to follow on from that by formally um, opening this great institute event um, titled Congestion in Melbourne, Is It Time to Consider Congestion Charging? Um, as uh, Andrew said, my name is Helen Rowe. I work at Co-Design Studio um, and interested in really unpacking these these sort of sticky issues that face um, our innovation future uh, looking at cities. So before we get stuck into the topic, and we've got three fantastic speakers um, ahead to talk about this, um, I just want to flag that this has been um, catalyzed, this discussion, by um, a recent Great Institute report called Stuck in Traffic, Exploring Congestion in Melbourne and Sydney that you might like to read or may have read before coming here this evening. Um, just before we kick off, I had a few um, areas of housekeeping before we um, start with our first speaker. Um, firstly, the session is being recorded this evening, just to keep in mind um, as you're posing your question, um, in terms of the format to talk you through this, we have um, three speakers who'll be each talking for 10 minutes each, 
Following that, we'll be having a short panel discussion where I'll be posing a few questions to dive a little deeper on some of their, their discussions. And then we'll be opening up to questions from the audience. So um, jot down your questions as we go through and have them ready to pose to our speakers. Um, in terms of um, following the discussion, you'll see up there, you can use the hashtag policy pitch to contribute to or follow the discussion on social media. And finally, just uh, as a facilitator, and I do, I do this a lot, um, just some things about ground rules of discussion in, in these kind of forums. Um, we've got a, three great speakers to talk about congestion charging in particular and how we manage congestion. So I'll ask you to keep your topics and questions to that general area. Um, I'm sure the speakers are happy to hang around for a little bit afterwards if you've got a specific issue you want to chat to them about. Secondly, just keep your questions. We've only got a short period of time. Keep your questions pithy and short and to the point. So I'll encourage you, if you're um, starting to go a bit longer than that, to keep it back to um, a specific question. And finally, just to be respectful of each other in this conversation. Um, I do a lot of facilitating events about roads and cars and congestion and the uh, dreaded car parking and can get people a bit hot under the collar. Um, so just keep that in mind and, um, and respect that the, the people here tonight have generously donated their time to contribute to this discussion and just, um, yes, pose your questions well. So without further ado, I'll uh, introduce our first speaker of the evening. So Marion is our first speaker. Uh, she's the Transport Program Director at the Grattan Institute. She came to the Grattan Institute three years ago to establish its transport program from a career in government that ranges from authoring parts of the 2010 Henry Taxi tax review uh, to leading the design and implementation of my government account. She provided expert analysis and advice on labour market policy for the Commonwealth Government and the Business Council Australia, as well as at the Australian National University. She's published on government infrastructure, investment, cost overruns, value capture, congestion and most recently discounted rates. Join us in welcoming Marion to the stage. So I hope we're not hot under the collar yet. So thank you very much for coming tonight. Um, it's great to have such a good turnout and, and I'm looking forward to the discussion too. So everyone loves to hate congestion and, and my guess is that many of you are here tonight because you have strong feelings about the topic. So over the evening we're going to talk about um, remedies to it but before we get into that I'd like to talk a bit ab about some of the backdrop to the discussion. So I want to talk about how bad congestion really is and also some of the other options. We hear a lot about road pricing, but there's a, a, a wide variety of possible remedies that we can take. In our presentations or in the q and I'm not quite sure, my guess is that we're going to cover a lot of the concerns with congestion charging. And some of those are, is it just too inequitable? Um, haven't we already paid for roads? What about autonomous vehicles? What are they going to do to congestion? And then perhaps some of the issues that, that do get us hot under the collar in the neighbourhood, things like trucks <clears throat> and parking. So what I'm going to do for my 10 minutes is I'm going to give you a diagnosis of Melbourne congestion and it's based on the report that Helen referred to, Stuck in Traffic. So in the next five or so minutes, I'm going to talk about why people think congestion is so bad what objective measures tell us about how bad it is and where of Melbourne's congestion, some of what 
you will expect, and perhaps a few findings that you didn't that you didn't expect, or certainly we didn't expect when we did the report. So to start with, why everyone thinks congestion is so bad, I think partly we think it because certainly the media talks this up a lot. So we get um, enormous headlines saying traffic chaos revealed. And I think more seriously, we do, we've had very rapid population growth and that's a backdrop to a lot of what's happening. So Melbourne has grown by 25% in a decade and that's just a huge rate of growth. And what it means for us is that we can remember 10 years ago, many of us, what it was like and it was not as busy as this. The population growth has been very large, but the pace of it is also speeding up. So in the last year, the rate of population growth was 2.74%, but in the five years leading up to that, 2.54. So it doesn't sound like a lot of difference, but it's a large number of people and it is compounding. So I will start by showing you this first slide, which is um, part of why we feel that this is a problem. This slide shows you that the speeds on urban freeways in Melbourne have been declining over time. And that's part of the, the sort of felt impact, if you're a motorist, um, of congestion. And it matters to us, road congestion in particular matters to us, because we have very car-dependent cities. So Melbourne is um, not the most car-dependent, it's not the least car-dependent. In fact, Sydney is the least car dependent, and I'll show you what that looks like. So this map shows you that from almost every suburb in Sydney, the majority of people are getting to work by car. So, so that I think, um, it, it's, it's not surprising that it feels bad to us, um, but in writing this report, we wanted to look at some more objective measures to try, and it's not easy to do really, what is objective, how bad is too bad. Um, in, in a sense, any delay is costly to people, but if you had no delays, that would also be costly. Um, it would mean that we'd overinvested in infrastructure or else that we had nothing worth travelling to. So the, the rest of this presentation, I'm going to um, focus on some of the insights on, based on an analysis that the transport team did last year using Google Maps. So we got a bundle of over 350 trips in Sydney and Melbourne and a few in Brisbane, and we took 25 observations a day from Google Maps, and the measure that we were capturing was estimated trip time. So, so the goal here really is to put down some facts to help inform the debate about congestion and therefore how to manage it. So one way that we looked at how bad congestion is in Melbourne is to compare it with Sydney. And you can see from this slide um, that it's broadly similar. So this slide is relying on a measure of the time that an individual trip will take at all points in the day compared to the time that that same trip would take in the middle of the night or under free flow conditions. So it's a way of benchmarking um, how, how much variation there is and how much variation from free flow. And it gives a motorist sense of what this is like. So Melbourne and Sydney have got similar aggregate congestion. This is the full bundle of trips. So I think that's helpful in a way, but it still doesn't tell us if that's bad or not, which um, is a harder question. So we did have a go at this, and we used more of an engineering perspective on the road capacity. 
And so I'll show you what this looks like. This, to, so to understand this slide, you need to know about the level of service measures of road performance, which I'm sure some of you do know about. So the scale runs from A, meaning free flow, right down to F, meaning flow breakdown. And what this slide shows you is that most of the time, performance of, of some of the, the notorious arterials in Melbourne is pretty reasonable. So it's rarely dropping even to level C, which signifies stable flow or close to free flow. And that's the target level of service for some urban and most rural highways. Of course, there's still plenty of variation across the city. Um, so these are some notorious corridors. And uh, there's two lines here. The thicker line is the average. And um, the thinner is, you could think of it as what happens on the worst day in a typical week. Even on the worst day in a typical week, it's rare for the level of service to drop below level D, which means, or, or to level E, which is when flow, the traffic flow starts to get a bit unstable. So the slide points to a finding that, that I think might be unexpected, and that is that there doesn't seem to be evidence of a lack of physical capacity on the road network as a whole. And yet people are concerned. So we looked in, then in more detail at some of the specific character of Melbourne's congestion. And I'll show you a, a little bit about that more detailed set of findings. So first of all, you can see that Melbourne had some of the worst delays. Um, so these are trips into the CBD in the morning peak. And what you can see is some of the worst of those delays are if people are coming in from the northeast. So you see it for people coming in from Doncaster, Heidelberg, Diamond Creek, or Kew. And the delays that they're facing are much worse than those coming to the CBD from other parts of Melbourne. So in the morning, um, in aggregate, these trips are um, taking 120% longer than free flow, whereas from other parts of, of Melbourne, they're taking about 70% more than free flow. These trips, although you can't see it on this slide, these trips are also subject to more variability, and I'll show you that in a minute. But the common thread here seems to be reliance on the Eastern Freeway. And, and this effect also spills over to the arterials that are linked to the Eastern Freeway, particularly Punt Road and Hoddle Street. So let me show you what that looks like. So, so this is... Um, this slide is really showing you variability or unpredictability in, in the trips. And the way to read it um, is that the coloured bars are showing, um, sort of half the observations are sitting inside the coloured bar and a quarter on either side. Um, and the line in the middle of the coloured bar is the midpoint, the median. So this slide is showing how reliance on Hoddle Street is associated with substantially worse reliability than routes that use other corridors. All of this is in the morning peak. So much more, I showed you in the previous slide that there's more delay. This is showing more unpredictability. Although Hoddle Street is particularly bad, um, it's not the only bad one. Some of the other arterials immediately around the CBD have got substantial delays as well. So if you're using not just Hoddle Street and Punt Road, but Church Street, Victoria Parade and Princes Street, there's significantly higher delays than for average CBD 
commutes in general. So a lot of this is about um, passenger travel, but I'm going to finish up by showing you freight routes because this is a, a bit more of a, a good story, I think, for Melbourne. A lot of Melbourne delays are, are, seem to be a little worse than Sydney, but it was quite pronounced that when it's key freight routes, Melbourne actually um, does have quite a lot less delay than Sydney. That the kind of routes here are in and out of the port and airport and key freight corridors. So it is one of the few areas where Melbourne clearly outperforms Sydney in terms of delay and reliability. So I'm going to conclude now by, by sort of saying the road congestion in Melbourne can be bad in parts. Overall, it's not nearly as bad as I expected. Um, but population growth has been very rapid. It remains very rapid. And that's really why I'm arguing that governments should start to look more seriously at pricing as part of their suite of options to manage congestion. I think that, in my mind, that involves looking at the most congested times of day and places. Um, I think to offset a congestion charge against other charges, such as vehicle registration fees. And I think a key challenge is going to be working out how to integrate a congestion charge with existing tolls. So that's the end of my overview, so I'll hand it back to Helen. Thank you, Marion. So before we get our second speaker up here, a little bit of an introduction. Our second speaker is Dr. Elliot Fisherman, who heads up the Institute for Sensible Transport. He completed his PhD at the Centre for Accident Research and Road Safety and his postdoc at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. He's advised the Australian Prime Minister's Office on Sustainable Mobility, as well as the New York City Department of Transport, Transport for London and the OECD. So some big hitters there. In recent years, he's completed two landmark reports for the City of Melbourne and the City of Adelaide on disruptive transport technology and implica implications for local government, which obviously has a lot of crossover in terms of congestion charging. Welcome to the stage, Elliot. Thanks very much, Helen, and thanks very much to the Grattan Institute for inviting me to speak today and for putting on a topic that I think is uh, more important now than it's ever been, and to think four or five years ago that you could run an event entirely on road user pricing and get this sort of turnout at 6pm on a weekday is pretty incredible, and I certainly wouldn't have expected us to be able to fill this room, which we have, which is great. Um, my view on this is a little bit different perhaps uh, to Marion's and, and also others in the room in that I see congestion as not something that you should really concentrate on from a transport planning perspective. Uh, I see congestion more of a symptom uh, than a cause and that the cause really is autodependence and you need to focus on the cause uh, rather than the symptom. Uh, so I, one thing that you'll see threaded throughout this presentation is perhaps a focus on wider city objectives about how we want Melbourne to be in 2050 or 2060 and then what do we need to do now in order to get there rather than uh, focusing too much on congestion because uh, the car's demand for space is insatiable and, uh, and congestion is to some degree uh, self-limiting. So when the congestion gets really bad, people look at for alternatives. I'm not necessarily saying that's the only thing you should uh, hope for, but, but that is something that I think uh, doesn't get quite as much attention as it should. I might start with the conclusions, just because I'm sure it's been a long day for a lot of you and your minds might wander, so if I get around to all my important points first, then, uh, then it's, a good, it's a job well done. So uh, first thing I'd like to say is, um, it's really just reiterating that point, that this needs to take 
a high view, I think, rather than just focusing on uh, you know, revenue and congestion, we need to look at what we want our cities to be like in 2050 or 2060, and then what do we need to do now in order to achieve that goal, to achieve that vision, so that we're creating a city that we would want our children and our grandchildren to grow up in. One of the themes that I think we need to focus on is doing more with less, uh, less space, less resources. It's not something we've done terribly well up until now, but uh, I think we've avoided making tough decisions and, uh, and we're going to need to start making them pretty soon. And changing the way that we pay for transport is inevitable uh, if we want to make Melbourne a better place. And we can either wait for congestion to get much worse than it is now before we implement congestion charging or we can do it ahead of time. Um, and I think, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And you can see with some of the major road transport projects that are happening in Melbourne, you can see it's really just repeating the same mistakes that we've made over decades and somehow expecting a different result. And so, really, solving congestion isn't possible and we should stop trying. So this is a, uh, a visualisation of how many people you can carry down a 3.5 metre lane of roadway over the course of one hour. And what it shows is that uh, for, uh, if you focus on car travel on the left-hand side of this slide, you can move about 2,000 people with an average occupancy of about 1.1 people per vehicle, which is the occupancy in Melbourne at peak hour. And then as you move more to the right-hand side of this slide, you start to see more space-efficient modes of transport. So a bus is 9,000. Uh, if you have a lane full of bicycles, you can actually carry seven times as many people if that lane, than if that lane was full of cars. So I think what the real challenge for Melbourne will be in the future as, as we increasingly grow in terms of population, I think the figure is 7.7 .7 million people by 2051. If we want to move those people efficiently and create the city that we all want for 2050 or 2060, we're going to need to start to create the opportunities where more and more people have convenient access to these more space-efficient mode of transport. I just want to talk very briefly about, and this is in very simplistic form, how we currently pay for car use. At the moment, about 75% of the cost of car use could be described as fixed costs that don't really vary depending upon how much we use the car. And then only 25% is uh, variable. So uh, what most economists would tend to favour is a model in which more of the cost was variable and less was fixed. Because once you have made the investment in a car and registration, you, you almost want to uh, chase your losses in the sense that it makes sense to use your car for almost every trip. And indeed, in, there are many suburbs in Melbourne, especially those suburbs that don't have car parking constraints or, uh, or real problems with congestion, the car is just used as the default mode of transport regardless of the trip distance. And part of the reason for that is the pricing signals really favour uh, maximising the use of the car since you've gone to the trouble to pay for it. I think the elephant in the room in this debate is autonomous vehicles and you know whether we're talking about it being a reality in cities in five years time as some people are or whether it's a 15 or 20 year thing, it doesn't really matter. In transport planning terms or in city planning terms, it's around the corner. So we need to start planning for it now. And these cars will offer a much uh, more compelling value proposition uh, to use those cars as a service 
rather than for every adult to own one themselves, which is essentially what happens currently. So cars are the most, uh, sorry, the second most expensive thing that most people will buy in their lifetime, and yet they sit unused for 96% of the day, and they have an average occupancy, as I mentioned earlier, of 1.1 people per vehicle. So this is a very poor asset utilisation. And the idea of being able to use these cars on demand rather than owning your own one is something that I think would uh, has really captured the interest of a lot of automobile companies that are now moving towards offering their product as a service rather than uh, something that everybody has to own. So now I just want to turn your attention to, well, why road user, pricing, road user pricing with autonomous vehicles? Why, why is it a, an important public policy issue to start talking about in this era in which, you know, at least 26 technology and automotive companies are now testing autonomous vehicles on public roads uh, in California alone? So we are moving towards autonomous vehicles, and, and let's talk just briefly about why road user pricing is an important public policy imperative under that situation. So first of all, you've got people that are currently too old or too young to drive themselves will now be able to, in the future, summon a motor vehicle, and so that will be additional trips in a motor vehicle that might not have been done in a motor vehicle previously. You've also got the fact, and we're almost starting to see this with some of the mobility as a service options that are available in the US now, where the cost is comparable to public transport, which means that because of the door-to-door -door convenience of car use, some people are opting to not use the train or the tram or the bus and using uh, Uber or an Uber-like service. Now, when you take the driver out of that equation, because you remember for every trip that you take in an Uber, 80% of that the cost of that fare goes to the driver. So if Uber and Uber-like services eliminate the driver, they'll be able to offer that service at a much lower cost. And the concern is that people will shift from public transport, which is, of course, much more space-efficient, to much more space-inefficient cars. And, and that then is another reason why road user pricing might be a necessary uh, component of the policy mix in the future. You've also got this uh, thing called the Marchetti Constant, and I know that there'll be people in the room that know about it, but uh, for those that don't, the Marchetti Constant is really just the observation that uh, throughout history, over hundreds of years, regardless of the mode of transport of the day, people have had a relatively constant travel time budget of around half an hour each way. The problem with autonomous vehicles, of course, is because people can now do other things while they're in their car, they might be willing to accept a greater travel time budget. So instead of 30 minutes, it might uh, blow out to 45 or 50 minutes each way. That might change the, where people live relative to where they work, which may increase vehicle kilometres travelled again. You've also got uh, one potential scenario, which a lot of people are talking about in, in transport futures circles, and that is empty miles. So the idea that someone might live, let's say you live in suburban Melbourne, in Murrumbina, and you travel into the city each day for work, you currently use the train because car parking is difficult, you might opt to buy an autonomous vehicle under the pr current pricing arrangements at least. You drive that car in, sorry, you, you sit in that car while it drives you into the city to work. You then send it home to park uh, with free car parking at your home and then summon it again in the afternoon to pick you up uh, to, and then take you home. 
Now, the problem, of course, is the obvious one that you've doubled vehicle kilometres travelled, uh, but you're also imposing congestion on the system, but you're not exposed to it yourself for half of that time. So people may be uh, less... Uh, the self-limiting uh, nature of congestion isn't really there for at least half of that time, which may exacerbate congestion. Now, it's OK for that one person in Mur Murrumbina to do that, but if you... Uh, if you cumulatively across the city, if you're making, if there are hundreds of thousands of people that are making similar decisions, then you've got a much worse congestion problem than the one we have today. And then finally, and this is something that some people in the federal government and in other areas are concerned about, and that is fuel excise. So at the moment, if you drive a $140,000 Tesla, you don't pay anything in fuel excise, but if you drive uh, Holden Commodore, you pay about four and a half cents for every kilometre that you drive. So there's some equity issues about that, but there's also a revenue one. Uh, currently, I think the fuel excise raises somewhere between 16 and $19 billion a year. Not a problem when you've got very low levels of electric vehicles uh, in the national fleet at the moment, but if we're talking about 20 or 30 years from now, you'd expect that a, lot, uh, a much larger proportion would be uh, electric, and that might have a, a budgetary implication for the Commonwealth. So, these are the only roads, really, the toll roads, uh, these urban freeways are really the only roads that we have road user pricing on, and yet they have the most capacity to take extra traffic, but we, uh, we charge them, uh, on them, but then these sorts of roads we don't charge anything on, and yet they have the least capacity to pay, so this causes a lot more people to travel as through traffic on these shopping strips that are car, sorry, that are tram priority routes and that they slow down traffic. So what we're going to need to move towards is a model which is kind of the opposite of what we've got now, where you actually charge the most for the residential streets, then you offer a, um, a slightly higher price, uh, sorry, a slightly lower price for arterial roads, and an even lower price again for the urban freeways, which is completely the opposite of how we currently charge for, for road space. Uh, but really, it's all about managing demand and recognising that we've gone about as far as we can with increasing the supply of transport. We now need to think about how we're going to reduce the demand for transport in order to create the city that we want in 2060. And I might just finally conclude by saying that uh, you know, this is not so much a, yes, there's important economic and transport questions with this, but it's also a political component to this, and uh, it reminds me of uh, something that a European Prime Minister once said, which is that we all know uh, what we need to do, we just don't know how to get re-elected once we've done it. And I think that very much applies to the case of road user pricing. So thank you very much. What a great way to end. Um, so our third and final speaker, and last but not least, is Catherine Rooney. Um, she is the Chief Economic and Commercial Advisor at Infrastructure Victoria, so it's great to have, have her here. Prior to beginning her role with IV last year, she was Executive Director, System Reform at the Department of Economic Development, Transport, Jobs and Resources, and before that spent a number of years as Assistant Director at the Department of Treasury and Finance, so fantastic background for this discussion. Catherine has extensive experience in the Victorian public sector as well as in the private sector, having spent the decade previous working for the Allen Consulting Group. Uh, welcome, Catherine, to the stage. Um, thanks very much, Helen, and thanks, Marion and Grattan, for the invite to speak at this amazing event tonight. 
Um, so Infrastructure Victoria is a relatively new player in the infrastructure policy space. Um, we were established by the current Victorian government back in 2016. Um, we have some legislation that requires us to do three things. We need to produce a 30-year infrastructure strategy every three to five years, and we did the first one of those a couple of years ago. Um, we're asked to undertake research into relevant infrastructure policy issues, and government from time to time will ask us to provide advice on particular issues, and they've done that a couple of times, first in relation to the issue of the second container port for Melbourne and its possible location, and we're currently doing some advice on automated vehicles. So it's an interesting place to work and a terrific job. Um, importantly, the IV legislation has a very strong emphasis on the independence of our role. So while we are part of government, we are um, required to be non-partisan and evidence-driven in the way that we provide advice. So this role has allowed us to actually be a public advocate for network pricing um, as a way of managing transport demand. And it was in fact one of our top three recommendations in our recent strategy. Despite the fact that government's been pretty clear up to this point that they're not overly supportive of the policy approach. So why do we support network pricing? Well, the effectiveness of price in managing demand for all sorts of services like electricity and water and every good that we buy in the economy is obvious. And in theory, transport, including roads, shouldn't really be any different. And of course, we already have pricing for public transport, so we're not entirely without some basis for introducing network pricing already. And the recommendation was consistent with the main theme of our strategy, which was to get more out of existing infrastructure. And this is consistent with what Elliot was saying. Um, as Marion noted, growth projections for Melbourne are extremely challenging, and it's self-evident, really, that building our way out of this growth is going to have limited effectiveness as well as potentially huge costs for taxpayers. So the pressure to do more with less is only going to grow in coming years, and I think this will help give momentum for policy shifts such as road pricing. So the 2016 IV strategy marked just the beginning of our work on network pricing, and we're now in the midst of an 18-month work program which will focus initially on actions that could be beneficial to manage congestion in the immediate to medium term, that is, before network pricing is in place. So I'll touch on some of those themes today, but we'll have much more to say about that in the lead up to the next strategy update in 2019. Sorry, I've missed a slide there. Um, so one of the things I mentioned, we had a we have a requirement to do research um, relevant to the infrastructure discussion, and one of the things we think we can usefully do in the short term to help facilitate um, significant policy shifts such as road pricing is to help produce the evidence that can demonstrate the impacts of different policy approaches. And to that end, we've undertaken a collaboration with KPMG and Arup to develop a new transport model for Melbourne to demonstrate the likely scale of congestion, but also to demonstrate how people might respond to policy changes to manage that congestion. So the model we've come up with, we've affectionately termed the MABM, which is the Melbourne activity-based model. And it complements traditional four-step transport modelling by focusing on traveller behaviour and choice. And it's ideal for modelling travel demand and has been designed specifically to test the effectiveness of policies such as pricing. Now, there's plenty of detail about MABM on our website, but I'll give you a little taste shortly. We released the first results in December last year, and essentially we modelled travel behaviour of Melbourne, um, the Melbourne community in 2015, and then again in 2031 to see what the likely changes would be. Now, the modelling shows that population growth over that time frame inevitably leads to increased travel, so an extra 3.5 million trips per annum and a 26% increase in vehicle kilometres travelled, so a significant uplift in the amount of travelling happening on our network. 
On average, delay is predicted to increase, however, only moderately by around 9% across the network. But this average result hides some areas of significant deterioration. And in line with what Marion's noticed about current activity, it's travel from the CVD from the north and the east in the morning peak that looks to be the real issue. In terms of public transport, Mabin predicts that even with significant public transport investments like Melbourne Metro happening over the next 10 years, which will see public transport mode share grow by 75%, the city will continue to be heavily car dependent in 2030, with more than 70% of trips happening on the road. To complement the modelling, we also surveyed Melbournians about how they feel about congestion. And they told us that while increasing delay is an issue, much more significant are increases in unreliability. People prefer a longer but predictable travel time to one which might sometimes be shorter but which varies more from day to day. So just a couple of snapshots of what Mabham can tell us. Um, this chart does take a little bit of time to get your head around, but it's worth the effort. Uh, it looks at the average travel times and distance in different parts of Melbourne's network across the day. So it shows both average trip times along the vertical axis and changes in average trip distance along the horizontal. And I'd just like to highlight three different stories that seem to be emerging. And just this is in 2031. So this is the change from 2015, which is the solid circle, and the hollow circle is where we move to in 2031. The first story it shows you is an Inometra story there in the middle with the arrow moving towards the vertical axis. So both average trip distances and trip times fall slightly in, in the inner Melbourne area. So in the context of an overall increase in delay, this is an interesting result. We think it's probably driven by Melbourne Metro, which is very successful in bringing people onto the public transport network in that part of the city, and which frees up road space, meaning that drivers are able to use more direct routes and less of the back road avenues. The second story is in the upper corner there around the outer areas, particularly in the north and west. In the outer areas, trip distances fall, but trip times increase on average. Now we think trip times fall, sorry, trip distances fall because population growth means that there is a denser, um, denser services and jobs to service that population, meaning that people have shorter distances to travel to get to the things they need like health, shopping and education. But an overall increase in demand means that even shorter trips are taking longer than they are today. But the real story is down in the bottom there uh, where the arrow is pointing straight upwards. This is the middle parts of Melbourne's road network where average distances stay relatively stable but trip times increase significantly. And these are the areas that Marion showed on her charts are where congestion is happening now and this suggests that this is only going to get worse over time. Um, the second chart I wanted to show you from Mabham relates to behaviour change and the role that behaviour change can have in ameliorating some of the impacts of road congestion over time. So this chart shows the number of hours in an average weekday during which drivers will experience peak conditions. And we've defined peak conditions as times when roads are at or above 80% of their capacity. The grey columns are peak conditions in 2015 and the pink columns are the extended peak conditions in 2031. So as we can see, peak, peak, uh, the peak times widen over time. So as demand for travel goes up, the peak conditions are experienced for more of the day on average. And the peak widening worsens with distance from the city centre, with the shortest peak periods found in the inner areas and the longest in the outer areas. Now for both the inner and the middle regions within the top two charts, the start of the morning peak becomes only slightly earlier between now and 2030. 
However, in the outer regions, the morning peak begins almost half an hour earlier. Now, importantly, the results in this chart would be uh, much worse if MABM didn't reflect behaviour change. So the new modelling capability that we've developed with KPMG actually allows people to make a decision to leave work for work earlier or leave to come home from work earlier in the day to avoid peak conditions. And the average delay increase of 9% across the network would be a lot higher if we weren't able to incorporate this behaviour change. So these are the problems that MABM are suggesting we're going to have. I guess the question is network pricing, we've said in our strategy that's the long-term solution. What can we do in the immediate to medium term that might actually help us better manage some of these problems? And first and foremost, I think, is the need to get the public transport service offering right. So at the moment, government does a number of things to manage travel demand, but by far and away the most significant of these is the provision of a public transport system. Public transport has a range of benefits, health benefits, environmental benefits, reduced road accidents, etc., um, for individuals and for the community. But by far and away, the largest public benefit delivered by the system is avoided road congestion. And in New South Wales, IPART actually quantify these benefits for the Sydney system, and they estimate that the public benefits are in the order of several billion dollars per year. And this rings true. You can imagine the congestion on Melbourne's roads without the trains running, and you start to get some idea of how reliant we are on public transport to manage our road demand. So in advance of network pricing, continuing to ensure we're getting the most out of our public transport system is the key way to manage demand. And there's also a significant equity angle. It will be much more difficult to introduce road pricing if large sections of the community have no reasonable alternative to paying a newly introduced road price. Adequate and reliable public transport will be a necessary precursor, or at the very least a practical support, to charging differently for roads. Um, and just to finish up, within that broader idea of using public transport to manage demand, um, I think there are some specific things that Melbourne is well suited for in the near term. Um, Melbourne's geography and shape are challenging from public transport networks planners perspective. So we have radial train lines running into the city and these make a lot of sense for people that work in the CBD. But the majority of trips taken in Melbourne each day are not to the CBD. Relatively low densities of both jobs and housing in other parts of the network means that there are plenty of, plenty of Melbourne is not suited to mass transit public transport. Buses are an obvious alternative to this and we need to get more out of our bus system. Now, some progress has been made on this front in recent years with the introduction of TransDev to the Melbourne bus network. And with the remainder of the city's bus contracts shortly up for renewal, we're hopeful that there'll be further change. But even buses won't work everywhere. To provide the reliable and frequent services needed as a genuine alternative to car travel for all Melburnians, we need to be looking to more flexible on-demand services, such as rideshare, and these need to be a core part of the public transport service mix. Now this is challenging, not, which, not least of which is around ticketing and fares. But technology is moving so fast that these hurdles might not be as big as they once were. And of course, while we're on fares, the IV recommendation is for transport network pricing, which implies not just road pricing, but efficient pricing across the whole network, including for public transport. And so it's possible that a significant opportunity in advance of congestion charging is to look more closely at how we price public transport and how we could make changes to better managing demand, particularly at peak times. Thank you.
Thank you, Catherine. So we're now going to move into the, I guess, discussion part of this evening. So I'll, I'll just uh, ask the other speakers just to come and join us up on stage. So thanks for some fantastic presentations to, to kick off the discussion. And I think we've heard a bit about the nature of the congestion problem, um, some of the disruptions ahead, whether that's autonomous vehicles or changes to our public transport system that might change the demand, um, also about population growth. But I guess for me, the, the topic of today is about congestion charging. So I might just sort of jump in with a, what are the nuts and bolts you think of actual congestion charging or a road user pricing system. So whether that's the principles involved or what are going to be the, some of the key success measures um, to implement that. So maybe I'll start with, with Marion. So I think this is um, this is where it gets difficult. <laughs> so, so the principle of pricing to manage demand um, is very well established, but in practice, it is a, it's extremely difficult to design. So we've, we've had a bit of a first go at it and plan to do more work on this, but a few principles I would say are important are, firstly, um, I guess I'd take a, a different view to Elliot in that I think if it's a congestion charge, then um, if, if a, a part of the road network is not congested, um, it doesn't seem to me a, a great idea to charge a charge to go on that. And so in, in my mind, that is local suburban streets and the like. Um, so I'm sure you'll have a view about that. But I think um, a few other things we know are that people are quite responsive to prices. And that suggests you don't have to set the price high to get a behaviour change. And you certainly don't want everybody to change their behaviour. You're really looking for quite a, a small number of people to take the opportunity to save some money um, by taking their trip at a different time or taking a different mode of transport or perhaps not taking the trip at all or bundling their trips together. So I guess that's a second principle. Um, I think a third principle is that um, you need to be very respectful of people's right to privacy in how you do this. And so the technology option that you choose um, has to um, allow people to be anonymous um, when they want to be anonymous, even though you have to find a way to charge them. That's quite a difficult one. Um, and I think finally, um, the community um, is understandably wary about this sort of proposal. And I, one of the things that's worked quite well overseas is to uh, do it in graduated steps, so to perhaps um, trial it or to have a graduated implementation so that there's the option for governments to change direction and learn along the path rather than big bang, we wake up one day and off we go. Yes. Um, Elliot, other thoughts around the practicalities of how you do it or the principles that should underpin it? Yeah, look, I think uh, I know that Ken Henry, the chairman of the Productivity Commission, uh, he feels as though you should just look at the roads that have the worst congestion and charge for them. Uh, my concern with something as simplistic as that is that it might just, it wouldn't take more than uh, 20 or 30 minutes for an app developer to develop a, an app that routes you right around all of the areas where uh, you're going to be charged with congestion and then it would have flow-on impacts to other roads that really shouldn't be carrying large volumes of traffic. So uh, we favour, and, and this is kind of the gold standard, so I can see why um, I, I wouldn't want um, the great to be the enemy um, of the good. Uh, so the, the way that we favour the model working is where you have a complete network-based charge, so every single road in all of Victoria is charged and 
for roads in rural areas, uh, regional centres, outer suburban, Melbourne, you charge the base rate. So let's just say for argument's sake that's five cents a kilometre. And then if you want to use the more congested roads, then you pay more for that. Uh, but you pay less for urban arterials because they're designed to carry traffic at high volumes of traffic. And you pay uh, less for the roads that are less uh, designed to carry large volumes of traffic. So I see this as, in terms of principles, I see this more as a, an, a road network management tool than a congestion busting tool. Uh, and, and calling it a congestion charge might give people the expectation that if they're paying it, then they're not going to be uh, um, exposed to congestion when in actual fact they might. So I'd be a little bit wary of that. Um, but it really would help to, uh, for city, uh, sorry, for state government policies like smart roads, uh, it would help to underpin that by giving people the pricing signals to, for instance, not use a priority tram route as a through road for car use, which currently there's really nothing stopping large volumes of people from using the priority tram routes as through routes. So network management is my overarching principle. I think that's, that's a good segue. Um, I like the rebranding uh, of, of, the, of the term, but the segue into broader road management, I think is a nice segue to get Catherine into the conversation around, in terms of road pricing, you talked about you know, network, um, the network approach rather than particularly on the roads. What other things do you think need to be added into this discussion to make at, um, a more holistic management of the issue. Um, yeah, so I, I guess the point I was trying to make is that there's no point necessarily putting a price on roads if you're not going to efficiently price the other alternative modes of travel. And so we already have a price on public transport, so that's potentially an opportunity for us to, um, I guess, there's not a lot of information around about how people respond to public transport prices, so I think there's a bit of an information gap. And I think it would be really helpful if we started to gather information on how people respond. Uh, and then that would give us the opportunity to potentially use our public transport pricing system to better manage both public transport demand but by virtue of that road demand as well. So, I mean, we have, we have off-peak prices for V-Line. We have an early bird product in the city coming into the city in the morning. Would more of those types of products be a valuable thing? I guess there's not evidence there yet, but I think we should be looking at those things for the future. Great. Well, I'm not keen to not hog the uh, microphone myself, but open it up for some discussion. So we've got some roving mics um, around the room, I think, for discussion. Um, so if you've got a question, just to, to pop your hand up and just maybe keep it up so I can find you in the crowd. I've also got some questions here that were submitted by audience members ahead of the session, so I'll, I'll dip into that um, as and when needed. So first, questions from the crowd. One right down the front here. <laughs> Um, Freya Marsden, I wear a few hats, but Brotherhood of St Lawrence is one of them. I'm interested in the haves and have-nots. At the moment, we've got a number of the haves in the leafy burbs in the middle ring and an emerging pattern of have-nots out where we don't have tra public transport on a grand scale, not to the same extent as we do in CBD, for example. So how would we deal with road pricing or congestion pricing uh, if you are going to have a blanket overall um, trips then and they don't have the option to actually switch to public transport and it's often that's the only way they can get to the jobs. The jobs actually aren't out there as much as they could be. That, that is increasing, that is improving. How would we deal with the disadvantage factor? Fantastic question. So who would like to jump into this one first? 
I'll give a yeah. quick answer because I've given that some thought as well. I think the issue you raise is a real one and we do a lot of work in outer suburban Melbourne where 93, 94% of all trips are done by car and there are really no viable alternatives for a lot of trips. I think there are a number of ways you could do it. One, and, and this isn't necessarily going to solve all of the equity issues, and there are equity issues in the current transport system now, and it's not equitable now. So as long as what we're proposing is more equitable, may not be perfect, but more equitable than the current system, then I, I think we're probably that's probably a good sign that you know, we've got the green light to move ahead with some transport pricing reform. First thing I would do is look at the possibility of people with healthcare cards getting half price uh, per kilometre, so they get essentially half price public transport ticketing, so it would make sense to transfer that over to road user pricing. There's also, and this probably introduces quite a bit of complexity, but it's certainly not the most complex thing that governments do, you could have the road user charge based on the taxable income of the Register of the person who's registered as the owner of that vehicle. There are some problems with that as well in terms of registering your vehicle in your son or daughter's uh, name who may be 18 or 19 years old and have less taxable income, so they're enjoying the benefits of the lower price. But th there are a number of ways of, of trying to address that, but I think also it doesn't get away from the fact that people in outer suburban Melbourne deserve better public transport as well. So looking at whatever revenue is generated from the charge, having a public transport building fund so we start to develop the, the rail network uh, so that it moves beyond the kind of 1930s network that we've got now when Melbourne's population was only a million. If I could add to that, um, so I think it's a really important question and um, I'm very glad that you asked it. And I, I also share Elliot's view that um, outer suburban public transport is not what it needs to be. Um, but I would make a couple of other comments. One is that um, the uh, if you think about... Um, uh, so we often imagine that everybody is converging on the CBD and therefore they need heavy rail to do that, but it's actually not the case. So it's 10 to 15 per cent of jobs are located in the CBD and the, the vast majority of jobs are just spread all over the city. And, and a lot of the jobs growth is, is like that too because the, the growth areas are healthcare and social assistance, they're in education in particular. But if you also think about a lot of retail jobs and, and so forth, uh, the, the great majority of jobs are everywhere. And that actually is why people are driving to work because mostly they're not actually driving that far from where they live and that's why trip times are not actually that long. So having said that, um, it, depending on, so the, if, a, if a, a price is designed to catch people in all over the city then I think that does become pretty problematic, particularly if those areas are not actually congested. I guess that's part of where, where we differ on this but there are hot spots of congestion in outer parts of Melbourne, there's no doubt about that. You certainly pick that up from the RACV hotspot survey and from a lot of evidence to that effect. So, um, so resolving that is, is difficult but um, it seems to me, I guess, another way to think about or another set of options to address it is that that everybody faces the, the price signal but that you can give people um, a top-up fund so they can use that money either for congestion charging or on something else that they care about instead. So there's opportunities for the new technology to also support some of this stuff. Catherine, is there anything else from the um, IV's work around the broader sort of you know, issue of equity in the city? Uh, no, I think I'd just reiterate the point that Elliot alluded to, which is you asked earlier about um, what principles should underpin a pricing system. And I think 
whatever system is ultimately proposed is going to have to be a value proposition for the community. Um, and that's a lot of that is going to come down to where the money goes and what it's spent on. And I think um, returning that money to the system in terms of public transport investment is a way of um, you know, conveying to the community that it's not just a big tax grab, um, that public transport is a viable alternative and that providing a standard of public transport that gives everyone you know, a reasonable level of travel kind of um, service is going to be part of a broader package. So. And just, just going on from that point, and I'll go back to the audience for a question in a moment, but that idea of where does the money go, um, is that something that's come up in, in your um, background reading or research around road pricing and what are the sort of standard models about how that does get um, put to good use? Well, I'm not an expert on that other than to say that in London a lot of the funds went into public transport improvement in uh, bus services in particular and I think the main problem they had on the first day that they rolled out the London congestion charge was that the buses were running uh, ahead of schedule because the congestion was, was much lower. So I think that shows you when you put in a price signal what sort of change you might get. But I think we do need extra dollars to towards public transport, but we also need changes in the way that we allocate road space so that we're favouring the modes of transport that we want to see more of and not always uh, necessarily providing the sort of um, level of service or trying to provide the level of service for car use, which is something that most levels of government have agreed they want to see less of in the future. Great. Buses running too quickly. It's a great problem to have. Uh, another question from the audience. Uh, another one down the front here. Front row is, is winning points for question asking. We like the mature age students. Um, <laughs> Question. I'm Liz Taylor from Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and I'm going to ask the predictable question from my point of view, which is around this hot under the collar issue of car parking. How do you see that as being part of the issue of congestion or congestion pricing um, as a, a road space allocation issue and as the fact that most parking in Melbourne is still free? Can we learn lessons from that? Is it part of um, how we manage congestion and congestion pricing? I'll take a shot at that. Uh, so I think charging for the car park pricing fits into this the broader topic that we're talking about, which is road road user charging of some sort. Now, whether the cars are moving or still is really the difference between those two things. Uh, Donald Troop, the car parking uh, professor, says that there are three elements of any transport system. There's terminal capacity, which is car parking. There's the vehicles, and there's rights of way. Now, uh, road user pricing, as we've been talking about it, is about charging the rights of way, so the lanes of, of traffic uh, that are carrying the cars. They're, that's where you put the charge. But uh, equally, I think you can have a look at lots of examples where actually if you charge for car parking, you start to get the sorts of changes in travel behaviour that, that you want to see when, you, when you're looking towards a model in which you want to have less car parking. So I think that's certainly something that we need to see more of and it's incredibly contentious. I mean most of the work that I do it shouldn't be about car parking but actually it's discussions about car parking because when you have large amounts of free curbside car parking it prevents you being able to introduce other initiatives like uh, protected bike lanes for instance or wider footpaths where the pedestrian uh, traffic is, is high enough. So car parking needs to be part of this debate as well and pricing car parking. Yep, it's a part of the overall mix of, of costs. Anyone else have a burning response on car parking or I'll open it up again? No? Okay, back to the audience. Someone not in the front. Oh, no, I was going to say not in the front row, but we've got another one down the end here. Yes, gentleman down the front, just uh, we'll find a mic for you. <coughs> Russell McGowan from the Public Health Association. I'm a bit surprised that there wasn't any discussion about hybrid mo modes of transport, such as people using bicycles 
to get to transport hubs and uh, a hub and spoke model. And I wonder if anyone would like to comment on that. I can't get the picture of Boris Johnson on his bike in the London trans uh, congestion free area out of my mind. I would like to t tackle that, uh, if I may. So, uh, at the moment, when anyone does studies on car parking at train stations in Melbourne, and they do number plate surveys, as we've done a couple of times over the years, and you, you, you collect all the number plates of cars parked around the train station, then you send those number plate details to Vic Roads, and they send you back the postcodes of where those cars are registered. About 25% are registered in the same postcode as the train station, and another 25% are in the adjoining postcode. So we've got an awful lot of, car, of valuable land around train stations that is being used to park cars that usually would have one person in them uh, that are travelling a K or, or two kilometres. So we need to do more to encourage people to use bicycles to get to train stations and uh, and that's something that then would free up a lot of that valuable space around uh, the train stations that are currently simply car parks. I think in the Netherlands something like 40% of all train trips start with a bicycle trip and I think we can n learn a little bit about the network planning that's gone into those train stations in the Netherlands to provide the protected bike lanes to be able to get people to the train station and then make their onward journey by train. So just for you, Florence, Catherine, like this is you talked about the broader network stuff, and obviously, you know, walking and cycling and sustainable modes are a part of that conversation. So how does that get built into your thinking? Well, I think um, one of the issues with active transport is that the benefits that are often sold when you're, um, you know, advocating for further investment in active transport are around the health, the health benefits, and um, the matching of active transport as a solution to a problem of excessive transport demand is not a kind of natural fit um, and I think there needs to be more evidence around the the actual role that active transport could play in taking traffic off the roads in key congestion hotspots. Um, you know, and I'm talking about things like um, looking at the demographics of the people that live in those areas and their likelihood to actually walk or cycle to work and then matching your investments um, to areas where those, there's that potential, if you like, and that opportunity. And I don't think there's a, an established discipline necessarily, certainly within government, of making active transport decisions in that context. I think they're often thought of uh, much more in terms of the public health benefits. And so there's a little bit of a cultural shift for decision makers, I think, but I think certainly um, it's something that our organisation will be looking further at over the next few months. So road pricing can be broadened out, think about network, not only pricing but also uh, benefits. Um, another question from the audience, who have I? Yes, uh, just a gentleman up at the back here with his hand raised. Thanks. Uh, Owen Lewis from EY. Um, I'm just wondering whether you guys have, or this is probably a question for you Catherine, whether Ivy has a view on the, the type of outcomes they want to facilitate with road pricing. Um, you know, it's got great potential to kind of uh, change our land use, you know, create polycentric cities, all these types of stuff, um, you know, uh, encourage a shift to active and public transport modes, or, you know, more bluntly, you might just be focusing on maximising economic benefit. Um, any views? Um, I guess our 30-year strategy had a range of objectives and there were some economic ones in there obviously but also some environmental and social um, objectives as you would appreciate. I mean I guess our fundamental driver in the way we think about road pricing comes back to what I said earlier about getting more from existing infrastructure. So as an infrastructure organisation we don't want to be all about building new things all the time as the answer to everything and, and roads as an unpriced um, utility is like a 
an obvious example of where we should be looking at pricing and the role that it can play. Um, because if we can get better use out of roads by pricing them, freeze resources up to spend on other things that potentially have more value to the community. And so um, we're coming at it from an efficiency perspective, which is an economic concept, but I think it can have payoffs um, in terms of getting more out of the roads will mean we've got more resources to put into things like schools and hospitals. And um, so it's, it's an opportunity, I think, more than anything. And maybe up to Marianne, in putting together your report, what were some of the outcomes that you were thinking about as being the, the major um, benefits of, of looking at road pricing? Yeah, look, I think it's a really interesting question and um, I, I tend to think it, um, there's sort of two paths you can go. One is efficient use of the infrastructure that you've got and the other is revenue maximising. And um, I suspect that a lot of the suspicion in the community is because um, people fear that it's um, we've already paid for this and it's um, a revenue grab, that kind of thing. And and people, are, you know, I, I think that it's not an outrageous thing to be concerned about. Um, so it seems to so that I don't I don't think it is a good way to raise money. I think if you think of it um, through the eyes of an economist, it's probably not a very efficient way to raise money because um, people do appear to be quite responsive to prices. So you will. Um, deter more behaviour than you necessarily want to do. So it seems to me that thinking about it as a revenue neutral um, way of getting more out of the infrastructure that you've already got is um, is how I think about it and, and how we put it forward in our report and I think will be the basis of future work that we do on this topic. Great question. Uh, another one just down the front here. Hello, I'm Bob Cumming from Road Safety Audits. Um, Elliot mentioned um, about congestion charging being about better use of the rights of way. Um, it, I've certainly observed that um, when there's not parking on the side of the road, that the rights of way essentially double. And um, a large amount of our arterial roads in the inner to medium suburbs um, are basically half consumed most of the time by parked vehicles, which prevents rights of way. What does Infrastructure Victoria um, view on changing parking so that um, our arterial roads could be used for transport? Yes, yeah, so I think Another one of our strategy recommendations was about road space allocation and the fact that government needs to have a comprehensive decision-making framework around how we're going to use our road network. I don't think it's an easy area for government to be in because I think, um, you know, the, the benefits of parking to the community and to the traders associated with using those spots can be difficult to quantify and I think there are sometimes other benefits around um, place that um, having less road space devoted to movement and more to place um, can have benefits that are difficult to put your finger on. So we do think there is definitely um, room for a more detailed and transparent um, decision-making framework around how we use our road space. Any final, one, a final question um, up the back there, very back. Hi there, uh, Tim Peggy from Ethos Urban. Look, I foresee, whether it's in 30 or 50 years, that none of us will in fact own a vehicle. And the uh, way that it'll work is that you'll actually have an app or whatever and you'll say, I want to go from this place to this place. And there'll be significant uh, savings if you book ahead 
or if you're a regular user, but also that'll completely change how we view land use. Um, and the reason for that is at the moment, it's, you know, we allow bigger buildings and greater density at train stations, but ultimately some of those uh, aspects become redundant because of the flexibility in the system, but also we can, if we use autonomous vehicles effectively, uh, we can completely change and revolutionise where those hubs are. Just like your thoughts on that. The disruptions in different land use. Well, Elliot. Uh, I think what we're starting to see in some of the cities that embrace disruptive transport technology perhaps more than others, like uh, San Francisco, they're starting to change their building codes so that uh, uh, multi-level car parking is built in a way that it can be relatively easily retrofitted into other uses in the future, acknowledging that uh, the building might be lasting for 80 to 120 years, let's say, and that in 40 years' time they're expecting a mobility as a service model to be the, the dominant way that people use cars rather than an ownership model that we've got today. So we're starting to see that take place and we're also, uh, I think, seeing an opportunity to use curbside space, which is very valuable space that often is used in, a, I guess, a, a way that's fairly space intensive but doesn't necessarily provide a huge amount of benefit, the, the opportunity to repurpose that space for other uses so that uh, city streets that have uh, very much a, a car parking dominated curbside uh, strip can be used for, as I mentioned earlier, wider footpaths, um, uh, bus priority lanes, uh, protected bike lanes. And, and so there's a great opportunity once we move away from essentially every adult owning their own car to a, a, a model in which uh, one car might service uh, eight or ten households, then, then we'll start to see a better utilisation of that really valuable space on the curbside. A great, great question. Um, so just to, to wrap up the session, um, as a last um, point to get, get a cast our minds forward to the next step in this conversation. So um, it's just a final closing remarks from the panel around um, what's the next step going to be? So we're talking about either road pricing or congestion charging or network network uh, charging. You know, what, what do you see as the next, something we could just practically do next to, to keep this conversation going? And we'll start, start at this end. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I have thought quite a lot about this and in some ways this whole um, event arose because of a conversation that Elliot and Helen started last year. So it, it does seem to me that there's there's many, many ideas but not a lot of coalescence about what a model might look like. And until we have a sense of you know what are the objectives and what are the, the key design elements, then it, um, a lot of the time I think we're talking at cross purposes. So in my mind, I think doing some more detailed development work would help for people to be able to say, actually that's terrible or oh yeah, we could probably live with that or, or and, and to be able to then um, think about it in more specific and concrete terms what might or might not work and what we might or might not be willing to live with or what we might or might not embrace. Yep. Elliot. Uh, one option that's been put forward by a professor of transport uh, in Sydney, Professor Mikkel Blimer, he uh, said that one way that you could do it is a voluntary scheme where people opt in. So uh, people can say, look, I'm willing to pay a per kilometre charge and have some technology in my car to uh, enable a record of uh, uh, not necessarily where I've been because you can do the calculation in the car itself but, but they can pay on a per kilometre as they use the network charge but then they don't pay for registration 
Uh, and so there's that uh, trade-off there. And then. And so just to clarify, that would be very attractive to someone who doesn't drive their car very that's much. That's right. And I imagine a lot of people in the audience who might own a car but don't uh, use it very much because you work in uh, the city uh, may, may well find that model rather appealing. Um, so a voluntary scheme, looking at how that works and the learnings from that so that you can roll it out on a larger scale, and also having the Commonwealth lead this and saying to the states, who's going to lead this and who's going to go first? And if you go first, we'll give you uh, a, a large bucket of money that you can use for transport investment in the future so that at least we're getting one state having a trial. And my suspicion is that the pain will be in the change. It'll be that switch over and getting people used to the idea of changing the way that they pay for transport that will be the challenge. But once you've done it in one state, other states will look at it and go, oh, okay, well, maybe we can help solve our... Um, uh, or make our congestion problem not as bad as it would have been uh, by looking at these uh, demand-based factors rather than simply always increasing supply. Okay. Um, so I think putting aside the design of the system and, and the sort of process around that, I think in terms of gaining community acceptance for road pricing, it is about filling the gaps in the public transport network, particularly in Melbourne's outer suburbs. Um, and as I mentioned, I think there's a lot of scope there to do better with uh, the resources that we're currently putting into buses. And I think uh, rideshare and community transport provide a game changer, really, in terms of the way government can deliver public transport to parts of the network that aren't suited to the traditional train, tram or bus. So I think public transport should be the initial focus. Well, I think that's a lovely, lovely way to wrap up the conversation here this evening, talking about congestion charging from a discussion around what do we really want to get out of it, which I think we've had lots of different views this evening. Um, starting off with something very very practical to kick, kick off the conversation and also thinking about the where does that fit in terms of the broader the broader network. So I'd encourage you to jump on uh, social media and use the hashtag um, policy pitch and you know, see if you want to sign up for Elliot's idea. Um, I don't drive my car very much, so I might uh, happily sign up for that one. But any other, other ideas you had uh, that you did get a chance to raise this evening, we'd love to hear about that um, on social media. We'll just wrap up the session by um, asking you all to um, join me in thanking the, the fantastic speakers who've come along tonight. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.